0: We're taking a short break today. If you're visiting, it won't feel like a break at all. We've been going through prayer over the past six weeks or so, and we're going to continue that during the summer. But we're taking a quick little break today, and I want to talk about really an important theme that runs all throughout the scriptures, something that uh, we love in the Presbyterian Church, and it's the theme of the covenants. And the reason for this break will be revealed at the end of the surface, very mysterious. Uh, But the payoff will be worth it, I promise. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus is there. You'll remember He's in the upper room. He's with His disciples and He holds up the cup. And He says this, He says, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now that's interesting. Why would Jesus say, This is the blood of the covenant? Why wouldn't He just say, This is my blood? Why does he refer to his blood as covenant blood? You see, what Jesus was conveying to his disciples and really to all of us is that that word covenant would best disclose the nature of his death and the atonement on the cross. That was a covenantal theme, and that theme would show forth this really just majestic plan of redemption that that God had had forth from from eternity past. 30 years prior to that Last Supper, Jesus' uncle, Zachariah is going to stand up and sing a prophetic song. And he gets up there and talks about the deliverance and the expectation in which God is going to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham. You see, Zachariah gets up and says, oh, it's happening. This is what He promised to Abraham. It's happening. What I've read about all my life in the book of Genesis, it's happening before my eyes. And Jesus Christ is being revealed as the one it was all about. There's a pastor named John T. Rhodes, wonderful name, John T. Rhodes. He wrote a wonderful little book called Covenants Made Simple. And I'm going to be borrowing a lot from that book today, but it's, it's a wonderful book and I encourage you to get it. He writes this. Covenant is the theme that links the different books of the Bible to make them one united story, blazing through the Old Testament like a firework, before exploding into full color in the coming of Christ. To press that idea a little bit further, if you remember, we could if we could transport ourselves back to Israel worship, back in the Old Testament with the temple, you would be in the outer courts. And then we would travel into the inner courts. And if we were allowed to go even further, we'd go to the center of the temple, the Holy of holies. And all Near Eastern temples had sort of this paradigm. You know, outer courts, inner courts, and the holy of holies. And inside other gods, their temples, they all had statues. Giant statues of themselves or idols and these carved images. But in the holy of holies, for God's covenant people, there was no statue. In fact, our, our God forbade the use of statues in worshiping him. Instead, you would have found an ark. And that ark is called the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that ark would have been the Ten Commandments, which were the covenant documents of the people of God. And so Yahweh was different. He chose to reveal Himself not through images, not through idols, not through statues, but through covenant, through promises. Now the problem is that word covenant is not really used Often in our vocabulary. And yet in the Bible, it occurs well over 300 different times. It's extremely important. Adam, Noah, Abraham, King David, the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. If you read the Psalms, all of it is just soaked in covenantal language. You cannot understand those big books of the Bible, those big characters without understanding the covenants. And so I just say all that to simply stress why it's sort of a big deal. Why, why is covenantal stuff so important for us? Well, what is a covenant? O. Palmer Robinson, who is a PCA pastor, uh, wrote one of the key books on this, Christ of the Covenants. He gives this definition for us. A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. When God enters into a covenantal relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. Now, it's certainly more than that definition, but it's not less than that. And a covenant then is a is a bond. It's a binding of two parties, two peoples together. And it's more than just a mere contract or a shaking of hands or a promise. There are blessings and curses that come along with the keepers and the breakers. And there are often signs that are involved. There's a rainbow with the Noahic covenant, a bow that's aimed at the sky, saying, if I break this, let it be done to me. To me. There's circumcision, the cutting off of God's people. There's marriage, the wedding rings as a symbol. And these signs of the covenant are, are meant to emphasize the permanence Of the bond between the two parties. You cannot break these. There's a sign there to keep us permanently attached. Now, the ramifications of this are just astronomical. The Creator, the Sustainer, the beginning and the end. The God of the universe binds Himself to us, He makes promises to us and holds Himself to those promises through covenant. Relationship with us. That's, that's incredible. That's amazing. If we go back to Jesus at the Last Supper, we're in the context of a covenantal meal. The Passover meal. And Jesus is now instituting a new covenant institution. And he's holding up the cup and he's saying, I'm the Passover lamb. For, for thousands of years, all those lambs that were slain, they were pointing to me. The once and for all, the final lamb, the final sacrifice, all those types and shadows are now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes taking upon himself the curses of the covenant. The Bible says he became a curse for us on the cross. He he stands in the place of us, the covenant breakers, so that we might stand in the place of him, the covenant keeper. His blood is poured out. To fulfill the stipulations of the covenant of grace made back with Abraham. Now, up to this point, all the Old Testament saints had been waiting. They had been waiting for the provisions of the new covenant to be revealed. The land promises hadn't been done, the redemption promises, the deliverance, the the king of David's lineage who would sit on the throne. All of that was expectation. And then in Christ, all of it finds its formal inauguration. The promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, they find fruition in Jesus alone. No longer are they anticipatory, they are now realities. And so next week, we will come before a reality. And we will come celebrating the realization of the promises of God in Christ. We will hold up the bread, we will hold up the cup, and we will celebrate what Christ has done in our place. Final bit of introduction here before we get in the text. The summary statement of the covenant relationship. If you read the Bible, you'll see a summary statement over and over and over. And God says this, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. And that statement is repeated with each covenant. I will be your God, you shall be my people. Each covenant. And he's saying all the covenants are linked together. And the heart of the covenants is this Emmanuel principle that God will be with us. And where do we find the full realization of God being with us in Emmanuel, Christ the King dwelling with us, taking on flesh, coming to be with his people once and for all. You see, the Holy of Holies is now with us, dwells with his people. He tabernacles with us. So all of that is just a little flavor. I'm just giving you a little flavor of the covenants because today we cannot, we're not going through a, a full survey of them. We're just going to look at the covenant of works the covenant of works that God made with Adam. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to read along with me on the screen, this is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Let's pray. Lord, would you bless the reading of your word? Would you be with my stammering tongue? Would you let it be the word's? Of Christ that are spoken today that we might receive him with joy we pray this in his name amen now in the first few chapters of Genesis uh, God is forming he's filling he's creating and then on the climax of day six we have the actors the actors which are going to fill the stage of creation and we have Adam and Eve who are made in God's image And what that just means is that humanity is meant to reflect some of the characteristics and the responsibilities of God. We're meant to communicate God's image to the world. And right off the bat, God tells them what these duties, what these responsibilities are going to be. He says, you are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. And so God has just finished creating. And now he says to humanity, in your own way, now you go create. Now you go fill. Now you go subdue. Go enjoy. All that is very good. Go enjoy what I've made. Go start making little humans. Go make tiny little image bearers. And those image bearers are to be fruitful and multiply themselves. And they're not to stay cooped up in the theme park, in the garden. They're not to stay cooped up in the temple. They're supposed to fill the earth. And so here we have the Garden of Eden acting really as a temple. And Adam and Eve are the king and the queen of the temple. And they're going to send out their little princes and their little princesses into the earth to go subdue it and make it beautiful. Take what God has made and, and, and increase. Fill the earth with art and beauty and the splendor of God's glory from sea to shining, shining sea. And that word subdue implies that there's work to be done. You see, work is actually a blessing. Work is a blessing. It's not a curse. God did not create a museum. You know, he said, okay, now enjoy the earth, but don't touch anything. Don't stay behind the bars. Stay six feet back. Do not touch the artwork. He says, go cut down trees. Because you're going to need to build houses and boats. Go, go train horses. Go enjoy the soil. Go plant food. Adam and his boys, you know, they can cut down the river, they can go get some precious gems and make some jewelry for the girls. And even and the girls can sit there and they can take up the flute and they can take up instruments and they can walk with the Lord in the cool of the breeze, make fine linens. Use what I've given you, use these things and create. Pastor Rhodes writes: Earth was an art gallery full of beautiful white canvases, waiting to be made even more beautiful by hundreds of many artists created in the great artist's likeness and so these commands from god are sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate god reminds us that our families our work our art our play our sciences all of our marriages that's good those are good gifts that are to be cultivated and explored for our good and for god's glory we're to be salt and light we are to make the world a more pleasant place to live in. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves with our gifts and use our gifts. We're to create and innovate and play with the material the Lord provided. We're to explore strange new worlds and boldly go where no man has gone before. And among these positive commands from God, there's one negative. Genesis two sixteen through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying... You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you will surely die. You see, there was a simple, tangible way for Adam and Eve to ruin everything. They just had to disobey. They just had to steal from God's tree. They had to look at God and say, we want something more. In the midst of so much good, there was the possibility for things to go horribly bad. And if you know the story, (laughs) you know it does. And the curse was so clear, it was spelled out. You shall surely die. But we read it and we go, well, well, hold on a second. We're talking about covenants and there's, there's curses and there's blessings. Where's the blessing? Well, it's not as explicit, but it's implied. And it's implied in the other tree. Herman Bovink, a theologian, he said, Adam stood at the beginning of his career. You see, the other tree was the tree of life. And it's implied that 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 tree of life, if he he had stayed in the garden, if he had worked and he had done exactly what God said, he would have had access to it forever. In Genesis 3.22, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. And it says, you're banished lest you reach out your hand and take from that tree. And what we find in these first few chapters is that Adam, as a Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, if you're familiar with Thomas Goodwin, he wrote that Adam is a giant. Adam is a giant. Goodwin preached a sermon once where he compared Adam to a giant towering over the earth. He's a giant and he towers over the earth and he has a belt. And attached to that belt around his waist is all of us. Every single human being that ever lived is attached to the belt of Adam. And what Goodwin was getting was putting forward was that what happens to Adam happens to you. In other words, you are in a relationship with God, whether you are a believer or not, because Adam is your father. And Goodwin says, as those hanging from Adam's belt, we all face three huge problems. Guilt, grime, and the grave. And those are going to be our three points today. Romans 5.18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Paul says we're guilty. We call this original sin. Adam is the head. And because the head sins, therefore the body sins. And that link is not so much physical as it is legal. It's a legal binding thing upon us the president he declares war now you may not be happy that he's declared war but it won't stop us from going to war because he's our head and adam enters into the covenant with god as our federal head and his guilt is now legally applied to us you can, again you can say that's not fair but that doesn't really your choice doesn't really matter does it again you voted for the president well I, i'm i'm very against you going to war It doesn't matter. We're going to war. So that's the way it works with Adam. His legal guilt is implied to us. And of course, the same representation works not only for our condemnation, but for our salvation. And so if you don't like Adam being your federal head, you don't like him being your legal head, then you don't like Christ being your federal head when it comes to your righteousness. And so if you get rid of Adam, you undermine the cross. We can't do that. Secondly, we have our grime. Adam's guilt is ours legally, but we're born slimy. We're born grimy. You know, my heart is the problem. I'm born with a bent and a bias towards sin. Romans 3.12, all have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. The theologian G.K. Chesterton, who was known for his wit, he said that original sin was the only part of Christian theology that can actually really be proved. And what he meant by that is you pick up a newspaper and you go, yep, yeah, we have sin. There's something wrong with our hearts. And so that sin that is in all of us, Satan wants to feed that. He wants, the last thing he wants is for billions of little image bearers to run around and celebrate and sing and reflect God's image. He does not want that to happen. And so everything Satan does is to turn that mirror into a funhouse distortion. So that when people see the image of God, it's so distorted and warped, it's a grotesque thing now. We see this instantly after Adam and Eve. They eat the fruit, they disobeyed. And what's the first thing they do? They attempt to cover up their sexual organs They attempt to to cover up their nakedness because all of a sudden they're they're ashamed. Have you ever wondered why that is? There was a a theologian named Henry Blocker and he suggested it's because those parts remind Adam and Eve they are not self-sufficient. You see, Satan had said you'd be just like God. And the first thing they do is they go, no, we're not. No, we're not just, you lied to us. And and when Adam looked at Eve and Eve looked at Adam, he thought, I need her, don't I? And she looked at him and said, I need him, don't I? In order for us to actually create, we need each other. We need the opposite sex. We are dependent upon one another. And so they cover up their shame, their nakedness, because they were lied to and they lied to themselves. And we see this lie still going today with people who hate their bodies. They mutilate their flesh. And that should break our hearts. Because that's a lie from Satan. And it's the age-old lie that you can distort the image of the creator. Now, the curse was also that they would surely die. Except they don't. Except they don't. At least not right away. And even in the punishment, we see something about God. He is patient. He is gracious. He is loving. He is a covenantal God who loves his people. Adam and Eve are temporarily spared the full weight of the repercussions namely death, but we still see the curses applied. And so I want to see how that plays out. First, the first is that the curse relates to people. And so now our relationships are grimy. God commands marriage. He commands us to be fruitful and multiply. And the first mandate now becomes harder. Genesis 3.16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. All pregnancies are difficult. All of them are painful, but some are downright dangerous. And that's a result of the fall. Marriages and relationships between men and women will now be strained. They will be corrupted. The same word used here for for desiring her husband is the word used in Genesis 4-7. When, when God says, sin desires you, Cain, sin is crouching to devour you, to eat you alive, Cain. That's the same word. Again, Pastor Rhodes writes, rather than a natural loving desire, this is a desire that will be to consume, to harm, and to destroy. And similarly, husbands will no longer naturally gently lead and protect their wives. Instead, they will be tempted to rule as dictators rather than as servants. You see, so it's, it's broken. Grime affects our relationships with one another, how we interact with one another and how we treat our spouses. The second curse relates to paradise. Genesis 3, 17 through 19, curses the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. If you're a gardener, you know exactly what this is talking about. (laughs) I've tried to garden. It's a nightmare. You know, the aphids attack. The weeds attack. You can never stop the weeds. You can try to stop the weeds. You cannot stop the weeds. The thorns and thistles will come up. And you can imagine a pre-fall soil. You just think about it. You know, you think about grass. Grass. Without dollar weeds. You know, I just love my grass so much. I'm obsessed with my grass. Grass without dollar weeds, you know. Imagine that. And, and the, the, the sad thing is that the physical world, the physical kingdom now shares in the king's curse. The earth is groaning, longing for the day when it too will be restored. And so the earth is now subjected. Now we're at war with the earth. Now we've got a battle with the soil. Thirdly, there was a curse regarding our relationship with God. Genesis 3, 24. He drove them out at the east end of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve are now unfit to act as king and queen. They're sinful. And God, since he is holy and set apart and righteous and just and good, he cannot abide to be in the presence of their sin. And so we've been kicked out of the Holy of Holies. The final curse is that of physical death. Genesis 3.19. Return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We say those words at funerals, don't we? We say those words at funeral because they're solemn words and somber words. And they're words that remind us of the grime. Where does the grime lead? Leads to death. We're wasting away. The wages of sin is death. And so man was formed from the earth. He will return to the earth. When God breathed his spirit of life into Adam, he made mankind immortal soul beings. And so this is why this is so tragic. As C.S. Lewis says, you've never bumped into a mere mortal. When you go to Walmart... Your cashier is an immortal. All of us here are immortal souls. And so we will not only face physical death, but there will be what is called the second death. And that looms over our heads. Either you will enter paradise with God or you will enter the second death, which is the lake of fire and is hell. Which is punishment from the Lord. And so when God means death here, he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about death, death, that which Christ came to put to death. It's here that many throw accusations at God. They say, well, again, you're being unfair. You're unjust. You know, what right do you have to to, to do what you want with the clay? But that's partly because we don't understand the, the magnitude and the size of our rebellion. I always talk to my youth kids. I always talk about slapping me. I say, if you come up and slap me right now in class, what am I going to do? Well, I'd probably be a little surprised. I'd <laughs> be a little offended. You know, like, what was that for? But it's not going to get, you know, whatever. Okay, I'm not sure why you slap me. If you go slap a teacher at school, go into the principal's office. If you go find a police officer on the side of the street and you slap him, you're going to jail. If you go slap Joe Biden, <laughs> you might get shot. You might not come back alive. <laughs> well, what happens when you, when you slap the creator of the universe? Are there any consequences for that? And that leads us to our final G, the grave. Consequences for slapping the creator of the universe in rebellion In unbelief is the grave. And so we have this problem. We have this external legal guilt. We have the internal guilt and grime. And we have Adam's descendants who are no longer naturally God's children by birth anymore. God is no longer father to all of Adam's offspring. We're introduced, in fact, to a second seed. The seed of the serpent. And now there will be war. There will be enmity between these two seeds. And because of this war, because of this sin, because of this, the grave death, the second death, hangs over all of our heads. And we have to do something with it. Our guilt, our grime, our grave, they have to be dealt with if we want to get back to Eden. Well, the Bible has the solution, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul sees a parallel between this first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus. And he says in Romans 5.14 that Adam is a type. You remember the type that was the lamb? Well, Adam's a type as well. With Jesus being referred to as the last Adam, the true and better Adam. Jesus comes, you see, to make all things new and restore that which Adam had broken. The wages of sin is death. And when we come to Jesus, we see him... Perfectly sinless, yet having to die. And as the last Adam, Jesus sets himself once again as king and head, but this time over the unrighteous ones. He calls sinners to himself. He says, covenant breakers, come, because I've kept it. And I'm going to give that to you. And not only does Jesus do that, he binds himself to us. He binds himself to us and he unites us to him so that Paul, when he's persecuting the Christians and he's on the road to Damascus, Jesus stops him in his tracks and he says, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you? I've, not been, persecut- I've been persecuting your- these people. And Jesus says, no, you've been persecuting me because I am so united to my bride as one flesh that when you hurt one of them, I know about it. In the Old Testament, animal after animal had to die. Animal after animal. I mean, you read Leviticus. If you could squeeze the book of Leviticus, it would drip blood, wouldn't it? And you read it and you say, there has to be a better way. And then you come to the author of Hebrews and Hebrews says, there is a better way. You see, the blood of the animals never could do it. Only human blood could pay for humanity's sins. Only a second Adam could take the curse of the first Adam and redeem it. And Jesus, we see, wears a crown of thorns. King of the thorns. King of the curse. King of Eden's curse. And he says, I'll wear it upon my head. And he took upon himself all of our shame, all of our guilt, the grave. And by dying in our place, the bride of Christ, the church, that's what we are. He stands in the place of Adam. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I will keep my wedding vows. I've made a promise. And just as the bride takes her husband's name, we take the name of Christ upon us. The bodies that we will one day have in heaven will be clothed in his righteousness. New, glorious bodies that make Adam's sinless body look like like junk. It'll be incredible. What about our guilt? Jesus takes our guilt and he gives us his righteousness. A lot of discussion is being had right now about debt forgiveness. And every single Sunday I sit up here and talk about debt forgiveness, right? Right? I mean, can you even compare what Jesus has done for us? It's not just that our debts are wiped clean. It's that our bank accounts are full. We have infinite lines of credit. And when God looks upon us, he sees, not Adam, he sees his son, Jesus Christ. Justification is just as if I'd never sinned. What about our grime? Adam seemingly had it all, didn't he? He was the king of Eden, this beautiful wife living in paradise, had these, you know, God as his father, he could walk with God in in the cool of the breeze. And we look at that and we use this word, we throw it around a lot, perfect. Perfect. And yet just as creation was to be improved by the image bearers, Adam had room for improvement as well, didn't he? Adam was sinless but he was not unable to sin. How could Eve and him have been improved? Well, wouldn't it be amazing if they were unable to sin altogether? In Edom, Adam was able not to die. But what would have been better? Him being unable to die. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound all that impressive. But let's imagine tomorrow you get on an airplane and the pilot comes over to the speaker and says, yes, thanks so much. I just want you all to know there's a possibility... That none of you will die today. What would be better? There is no possibility that any of you will die today. And so you see, we come again to the second Adam. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's something unique about the life that the second Adam will give us. And this is a life that will bring us back into the garden, back into paradise, but it's an eternal, unspoilable paradise. Beloved, you will have no chance to sin in the new heavens and the new earth. And for my sinners in here, I mean, I feel that. That's a joy to me. I will have no inclination, no more bent, no more bias to sin. I won't want it. Because Christ is there. I will not only have the possibility not to die, I will be unable to die. For the tree of life will be there. And so Jesus takes our grime, and what does he do? He gives us the Holy Spirit of renewal. And so it's not just that I have to wait for heaven for that. That's called sanctification. Daily you are being washed. And you are being restored and being renewed. The painting is being restored. The mirror is being cleansed and washed. And so Heath Taws, me at 85, Lord willing, if I live that long, hopefully I look a little better. And the Lord has promised that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. But you see, God hates sin. And it has to be punished. It has to be punished. You read this. Sin corrupts, doesn't it? It destroys. If you start in Genesis and you just go through, it's not very long before we have to have the flood because sin has gotten so bad. It destroys like graffiti. It just paints over this beautiful creation that God has made. John Calvin, in his commentary on Genesis 3, he says, because he, meaning Satan, Could not drag God from his throne, he attacked man, in whom his image shone forth. And therefore, he endeavored in the person of man to obscure the glory of God. You see, the peasants in the hovels hate the king, but they can't touch the king in the castle, and so they burn the effigy of the king in the streets. And the covenant curses fall. Why do you think in our day and age the transgender movement is so popular? Because it's backed by Satan. It's the age-old lie. It's the lie to distort God's image and disrupt that mandate to be fruitful and multiply. We do not battle against flesh and blood. We battle against powers of darkness. Genesis 3 doesn't end without a beacon of hope, does it? Do you know the story? Adam himself is cautiously optimistic. Because as the curses are coming out, guess who else gets a curse? Satan. God makes a promise to Satan as well. And Adam hears that promise. And he looks at Eve. And he gives her a name. Before this, her name is Isha, which just means woman. And he says, I'm going to rename you Eve, which means life giver. And you say, Adam, God just promised you death. Why are you naming your wife life giver? Because Adam is there and he hears the curse and, he, Adam, and God says there's going to be a war between that woman's offspring and you. And that's often referred to as the first gospel, the proto evangelion. That is Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so God makes a declaration of war against the serpent, against the dragon. The battle is going to be fought. And then we're introduced at the very end there to someone called he. He. Someone who is distinct from the offspring. He will crush your head. God promises a great snake crushing hero will arise from Eve's offspring. And the rest of the Bible is about that guy. The rest of the Bible points to the he. And as you read it, as you read all this covenant stuff, you go, we're aiming towards him, aren't we? We're getting to him. The king after David in the line of David. That's going to be him, isn't it? And you come to the New Testament. And behold, there's good news of great joy for he has arrived. Rhodes writes, the serpent crushing son of Eve is in for no picnic. And when we find him millennia later sweating drops of blood in another garden before bearing a crown of thorns as he's hanged on another tree, we begin to see something of the horror and the curses of Genesis 3. And so Adam changes his wife's name And he trusts in the promises of God. Adam repents and he's going to start obeying the Lord. And God receives that because he takes their fig leaf apparel. And he gives them new clothes. And it's here in the animal skins that we get the first hint that something has to die. Something has to die for our nakedness and our shame and our guilt to be covered. So, Adam receives that promise from God, and that covenantal pattern of faith and repentance and God's saving repeats in almost every single chapter of this book, where God has mercy and God promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. What about you today? There are two certainties for you today. I'm told they are death and taxes. And all of us here must one day meet our Maker. And we can meet him with the first Adam as your representative. Or you can meet him with the last Adam. And I just pray that today is the day you repent and believe and cling to Christ. Because what a joyous day that will be when the Lord returns. Today is the day you look to that great covenant making God who loved the world so much. That he sent his son to die for us, to take away our guilt, our grime, and put it in once and for all to the power of the grave. Let's pray.